Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Weinbanks, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. It has been a wild week. And we have been digesting this big federal indictment on Donald Trump. And so today we're going to be discussing, among other things, the defenses that he may launch in this case, what the assignment of Judge Aileen Cannon in this case means, and also a big Supreme Court case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is big news which you may not know about. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. It's our favorite part. But first, you know, Juneteenth is among us and for a lot of us uh, and summer in general, it means cookouts. It means a lot of summery food. And I'm thinking about how I always surprise people at the cookout because I have very specific things, summery foods that I don't like. And I was wondering if my sisters have that too. The number one food that I cannot stand that most people like is watermelon. I think it's disgusting. I don't like any melon, honestly, but watermelon in particular makes me nauseous. The taste of it, the aftertaste of it, the texture of it, the consistency, it's really, truly horrific. And people are always shocked by this. But So I want to ask my sister, I also don't like chocolate ice cream, which also comes, I love chocolate. I love ice cream. The two things together ruin both things. Like it doesn't taste like chocolate and it ruins the texture of the ice cream. Like why are we even doing this? But so I just want to throw it out to you guys. Summer foods that you hate. Do you have them, Barb? Boy, I, I wish I did. I, I actually love all the summer foods. As you're describing <laughs> the watermelon, my mouth was watering. Like, come on, that would taste really good right now. You can have my watermelons. So I'll have you. All right, I'm going to sit next to you at the picnic. So I can have you. You can eat that. I want your watermelon. Um, I will agree with you though that you can ruin ice cream with a bad flavor. I like almost every flavor. I will absolutely indulge on chocolate ice cream, um, but there are a few that are just. Uh, you know, it, just no chance. Like anything mint, mint ice cream. Like, what are you doing? That's toothpaste. What are you doing to me? No mint ice cream. Oh, I love really. Mm. Don't like mm. too much junk in my ice cream. You know, they got a lot of like nuts and marshmallows and candies and Superman and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but a good salty caramel. You know, that that's pretty good stuff. So uh, I guess I am a, a little bit to, to use one of your favorite words, Kim, persnickety, when it comes to my ice cream flavor. But otherwise. <laughs> Bring it on. I love all the summer stuff, you know, barbecued uh, meats of any kind, uh, corn on the cob, you know, all the great salads and fruits and berries and all that stuff. Love it. What about you, Jill? So I'm basically with Barb. I love summer foods. I love everything about it. I especially love watermelon. I love watermelon so much that I make watermelon soup. I make candied watermelon rind. I mean, I really love watermelon and I will send you recipes for it. And honestly, you'll love watermelon if you taste my watermelon soups. 
I love I'm quite confident I will not. Like the taste of it's not it's not just like like I don't love bananas, right? But I like banana bread. Like it's oh. not the flavor, it's kind of the consistency of it that throws me. I hate everything about watermelon. Oh, I love banana bread. I love one of the best Ugh. ice creams is banana ice cream and an even better thing is to freeze a banana, peel it, freeze it in a baggie, and then put it in a blender with a little bit of yogurt or other thing to soften it up a little, and it makes the best ice cream. It's just a banana, and it's fabulous. It's amazing. My husband makes that, Jill. My husband makes that, too. It's fabulous, isn't it? it? Yeah, but I want some of your um, candied watermelon rind on the side. Are you going to share the recipe? Absolutely, we'll do. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> I wish y'all could see the Poor look Kim. on Kim's face right now. It's well, I do, I do love that my hatred of uh, watermelon is bucking a stereotype. So there's that thing. But, um, but Joyce, what, what summer foods do you not like? Um, so I love going to the cookout. Um, I really love barbecued ribs and nobody makes ribs like people in Birmingham do. But what I really don't like are potato chips. I, I've never liked them, didn't like them when I was a kid, and I just absolutely won't eat them. <gasps> My gosh. <laughs> I, I have an urge, and Barb will understand this, to like get you a bag of Better Meats and see if you still yeah. uh, adhere mm-hmm. to That's Detroit that. brand right there, Better Meats. <laughs> Good stuff. But, but I respect Never it. Gonna I respect do it. it. <laughs> All right. I respect that. So we will. So we, if you invite us to the barbecue, uh, ladies and gentlemen, just make sure that you have our preferences in mind. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. As Kim just said, by now our listeners have all heard in-depth analyses of the federal charges against the former president in connection with his retention of national defense information, concealment of documents, and false statements. But since the indictment was unsealed last week, we've been hearing about his trouble getting legal representation, as well as what legal, not political, but legal defenses he's going to put forth once he gets his team in place. So let's look at what he's going to be defending on and see whether we think any of them will work. And because there are so many possibilities, I'm just going to go uh, around the group here and say, okay, Joyce, what what of the defenses do you want to talk about and rebut at the same time? 
<laughs> well, there are two that I wanted to talk about, Jill. There are so many. Most of them are, are weak, but some of them are meritorious. And the first one is jury nullification. I, I know our listeners have heard us say, when the facts are on your side, argue the facts. When the law is on your side, argue the law. When neither one is on your side, pound the table. Well, jury nullification is sort of the classic pounding the table argument. It's where, you know, you don't have great arguments and the lawyer for the defendant manages to suggest to the jury, manages to insinuate because they can't say it directly, that even though their client is guilty, the jury should go ahead and acquit, you know, for any one of a number of reasons. It's not a charge that's meritorious. It shouldn't be a federal felony or, hey, this is Donald Trump, the leader of your cult, and you should not put him in prison. So the goal when Trump's lawyers pick a jury will be to find one or more jurors that they think that they can convince to nullify. They'll just be searching for that one pro-Trump juror who will never let go. But of course, hanging a jury is not the same as getting an acquittal. The government has the opportunity and has the right to retry their case after a jury hangs. And it's really hard to imagine Trump's lawyers putting together a jury well, where all 12 of the jurors vote for acquittal. Um, smart prosecutors see this stuff coming from a million miles away, and Jack Smith is a very smart prosecutor. So they have the ability to make these sorts of arguments from a distance where they make sure to remind jurors of the oath that they've taken, of the facts and of the law. And we saw that play out in the Paul Manafort trial where Mueller's team had a juror who, after the verdict came in where, where Manafort was convicted, she said, you know, I voted for Trump. I'll vote for him again. I didn't want to convict in this case, but the law and the facts were strong, and I followed my oath. That's the sort of situation that you have to set up there. Barb, what defenses have you been looking at? Uh, well, you know, lately, it seems like Donald Trump is all over this Presidential Records Act, you know, comparing himself to Bill Clinton's socks drawer and saying this is exactly like Bill Clinton. Um, and it's, 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 it's exactly not like Bill Clinton. This case is not about the Presidential Records Act. Donald Trump is charged under the Espionage Act. This strikes me as more one of those arguments that might sound good in the court of public opinion, but will never fly in a court of law. So just quick recap. The Presidential Records Act, passed after Watergate, thanks to the great effort of Jill and others, said that um, records that are presidential records, that are those prepared by the president or his office for the purpose of executing the job of the president of the United States are presidential records. And they belong to the United States government, not the person who occupied the office. Um, and in contrast, it defines what is a presidential record and what is not. And it says personal records are not presidential records, such as diaries and they list other kinds of things that are personal records. You know, a president's memoirs, they aren't uh, records that are used in governing. They are reflections of the president, uh, you know, for posterity. And there was a case where um, Bill Clinton uh, was sued under the Freedom of Information Act for the contents of some recorded interviews that he had done. And apparently he kept the recordings in his sock drawer, allegedly. Um, that's where that reference comes from. And um, the judge ruled that they were personal records, not presidential records, because they weren't documents or recordings used for the running of the office of the presidency, but his personal uh, records akin to a diary, excluded from the presidential records case. So there's that, which makes it very different. In addition, the Presidential Records Act excludes from its coverage 
agency records, records of the CIA, the NSA, the Department of Defense. And those are the kinds of things Donald Trump is accused of retaining. Those are covered by the Espionage Act, which he is charged with violating, willfully retaining documents pertaining to the national defense. So when he starts talking about how the Presidential Records Act allows me to keep these documents and it's just like Bill Clinton in a sock drawer, that is wrong on like three different levels. <laughs> so I, uh, I just want to make sure people are aware of that because we've been hearing a lot of it. What about you, Kim? What, uh, what's your favorite defense of the week? Before Kim answers, I just have to say, you remember that Clintons had a cat whose yeah, name was also Sox. Also Socks, yeah. So one thing that I found really interesting is very rarely does um, do the National Archives make any sort of public statement about any public thing. And the fact that Trump's um, mouthpieces have been on TV for so long with this claim that under the Presidential Records Act, everybody's given two years. You have two years just to go through this stuff and decide what's yours and what's not and 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 work through them. And, you know, Donald Trump hasn't even been given this. They came out with a statement saying, no, no, <laughs> that is not correct. All documents remain the property of the federal government at all times. Normally, what happens with, with normal presidents is they have a committee. Even those that have only served one term have some sort of committee or entity designed to serve as their future presidential library set up in order to work with the National Archives and say, okay, these are some archive documents that we may want to consider having for the library. And then together, they go through these things and see whether certain things can go to the, be set aside for the library or kept for uh, presidential records purposes. And that's normally what happens. That's not what happened here. <laughs> what happened here is Donald Trump just took them. He took them and made up some rules about them. So anything that they're saying about the Presidential Records Act, certainly if it, it may be citing precedent from the past where people had presidential libraries set up, presidential library committees set up, and they were going through these things legally and properly, and it may have taken up to two years to go through them all. That's not what's happening here. This is the Espionage Act, as everybody is saying. It's the willful retention of... Like, it's really not a hard case. Sometimes claims that um, go up or have a lot of elements that are, you know, can be tricky to prove, and a lot of defenses can naturally be built in. This one is so straightforward. Did you take documents you weren't supposed to have? Yes or no? Did you do it willfully? Yes or no? Did you obstruct when asked to give them back? Yes or no? I think in Donald Trump's case, it's all yes. And I don't, I really don't know what his defenses are. Yeah. And Kim, to your point, I mean, I'm sure you've read the indictment where they, they, they sort of describe 31 of the documents that he retained. And, you know, they relate to things like the U.S. nuclear program and yes. military and weapons capabilities of the United States and allies, uh, vulnerabilities of the United States and allies. I mean, really sensitive stuff. This is not, you know, Bill Clinton waxing poetic to his memoirist. No. Uh, these are documents prepared by agencies for the purpose of running uh, our military and our intelligence community. And yeah. it's really clear that he has not done any fundraising or in any way said he's going to have a library. No, he's done the nothing. circumstance. Exactly. Literally exactly. zero to establish a library because he won't admit that he lost. So, why so when he, he does this, what about? Plus, don't you have to like books to have a library? <laughs> 
picture books, Joyce, with a Sharpie. <laughs> hey, how do, what do you think about this analogy? I've been, think, I've been trying to think, does, does this work? He has no more right to these documents uh, and to keeping them than he did to keeping Air Force One. Does that work? Ooh, oh, that's a good that's one, great. Yes. I like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Like parked in the driveway. Absolutely. Like, what? It's my plane. I can do what I want with it. <laughs> no, it does not belong to you. Oh, my God. Although it is true that Nixon did get the Marine One, the helicopter that flew him away. It is now parked at his museum and library no. in California. It, right? It's still owned by the but National Archives. But that was donated, Of course, right? yeah. all, all yes. of the papers are, yes, and it was taken yeah. out of use. It was no yes. longer being used. It was given right. to him. He didn't steal it. Uh, he was crooked, <laughs> but he did not steal that. So what can you say? Well, Archives but, runs yeah. all of the presidential libraries, so it was still Archives property, even right. though it's there, Right. Exactly. Right. And and the National Archives does appoint the person who's in charge of the library, although originally it was a private foundation that um, raised the money, which is what happens. I mean, Obama, let's let's talk about the whataboutism. Okay, so let's, yeah, the, the Obama, Trump is saying, oh, well, he took hundreds and hundreds of boxes. Yes, they were given to him for his library. They were negotiated and he raised money to have a library. So, it seems to me a completely different thing uh, than what is happening here. So who wants to bring up another defense? Anybody want to talk about prosecutorial misconduct or the declassification? I'm not guilty because I declassified it in my mind. Anybody want to take one of those? Can I just say this one thing? Because I feel like in the media, I've seen this a couple times, the the confusion between this idea of prosecutorial misconduct and piercing the attorney-client privilege, which are two right. separate things. There can, Donald Trump's team, um, if his legal, you know, legal team can get it together to make this argument, could try to say, hey, you know what, the attorney-client privilege that was pierced in the case of Evan Corcoran, who had evidence of obstruction, may or, you know, they can try to say that that was improper, which is within their right. And if they do, the the result would be that that um, evidence would not be included in the trial. But I think what we're seeing in, a, in not just in the right-wing media, that's just, you know, kicking dirt into the air, but I think people in, in other media too are saying, well, would that mean prosecutorial misconduct? No, that would just mean a reversible error with, you know, or, or not a reversible error, but an error within that, that a court could rule that that evidence is not included, but that's not prosecutorial misconduct. I think if if prosecutors generally believe, genuinely believe that the attorney-client privilege should be pierced because of the crime fraud exception, which means you cannot you, you cannot enlist your attorneys to break the law, if they acted in good faith on that, that's not prosecutorial misconduct, right? Well, and also they had a court decision saying that right. the crime fraud exception applied and that they could have his notes and his testimony. But I th I think um, prosecutor misconduct is something different here. They're talking about, at least what I'm hearing hinted at, is that there was some uh, offer made to his Trump's co-defendant, Walt Nata's lawyer, um, about, well, we could help you on something, you know, hinting at that. And I haven't heard any proof of that, but that's, I think, what they're referring to when they say we might raise prosecutorial misconduct. I don't think it went that far. What I saw that allegation to be was that during the uh, pitch to Nauta's lawyer that they should get their client to cooperate, 
the prosecutor referenced the fact that he was aware that the lawyer had applied for a D.C. Superior Court judgeship. It's not clear exactly what happened. Um, but look, everybody knows that some lawyer, you know, in DOJ, now in the um, special counsel's office, does not have the ability to make judicial appointments. And I think the uh, Justice Department appears to have great confidence in that lawyer because he was in the courtroom during Trump's arraignment. So that suggests that they're not very worried. But I want to go back to the um, the suppression argument of the lawyer's testimony, the whole crime fraud exception to attorney-client, because I think it's really interesting. You know, normally Normally, there's this doctrine, the law of the case, that says that once a district court has made a decision about an issue in a case and it's gone up on appeal, that's it. There's no more reconsidering um, of the issue. It's over. And that's what happened here. District Judge Beryl Howell in D.C., she considered whether the attorney-client privilege should be set aside. She said yes. Trump appealed her to the appellate court, and, and they affirmed her decision. But this is one of those rare instances where I think Trump's lawyers may actually have a good argument that they can make, um, a, a good argument that Judge Cannon could revisit the issue. A and here's why. Judge Howell's decision was made pre-indictment. In other words, she didn't rule after the case was indicted. The case is down in Florida. And there's an argument that law of the case may not apply to pre-indictment decisions. Um, I did a quick search of the law, not an exhaustive one, could not find anything that definitively said that a decision made litigating a grand jury issue was law of the case. So I think Trump's lawyers can make some legitimate arguments here. Um, they could also argue that they have new facts that Judge Howell didn't consider or that there's some kind of manifest injustice. And the point that I'm making is Trump makes a lot of specious arguments. We've talked about many of them in the past. Well, here his lawyers actually have some good arguments that they can make. You know, this is not the magic declassification argument. Um, and so sometimes there are legitimate arguments on both sides to consider. Ultimately, I think this one ends up being a loser for Trump either way, whether Judge Cannon reconsiders it or not, because the facts here are so compelling that Trump was trying to use the attorney-client privilege to engage in criminal activity. But, you know, we should be careful and recognize that sometimes there are good legal arguments on both sides. And, you know, one thing to point out, Joyce, I agree with you. I think that they can revisit this issue now that if to, to suppress it from trial, even though it came in at the grand jury before. Um, but even if they lose that evidence, which I don't think they will, the case is still strong. You might lose the Evan Corcoran testimony, but you still have all the other stuff, the recording of what he said at Bedminster, the documents themselves, the text messages between Walt Nauta and other employees. So um, it's stronger with it. And I'm sure the DOJ will fight to keep it. But like the case isn't getting thrown out, even if Trump prevails in that motion. Absolutely. I think that that's right. And what about the search itself and throwing out the fruits of the search? Because that's one of the defenses that's being mentioned is that, uh, that he can't use, that the government can't use the search documents. Well, what do you think, Jill? I think it's a ridiculous argument in the same way that I think that the argument about attorney-client privilege, it seems clear to me that the crime fraud exception applies, that Judge Howell was correct and that it would be affirmed even in the context of the trial. So I think both of those are 
losers, as I also think. But I'd love to hear from you, Barb, on the declassification argument. You know, well, can, before we get to that, just on the search, I have yeah. questions. Not only I, I agree with Jill, I think that it's nonsense. But why, why, why was Bedminster not searched? I've been wondering this from the beginning, and now, and especially since the evidence in the indictment itself indicates that he was showing classified documents at Bedminster to other people. Why in the world did Jack Smith's not, uh, investigators not search Bedminster? What, what do you guys think? You know, I have one theory on that, Kim, um, and that is it may be that prosecutors learned about that one piece of paper that they've never been able to find Mm. Um, and they may have learned about it too late. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the things that a magistrate judge will look for in a search warrant application is is probable cause, but also freshness of the documents. Documents can stay fresh a little longer than other kinds of things. You know, um, if somebody had drugs in their house a year ago, there's not really much reason to expect that they'll still have it there. Something that you retain for a long time, much more likely to. But the fact that he was bringing these boxes back and forth, I, I could imagine... Uh, an argument that, well, we found out about this a year after it it happened. Um, and so is there probable cause to believe this one document is still there at Bedminster? But but I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine that they did look hard at this because um, it would have been worthwhile, not just as an evidence gathering exercise, you know, they always want as much evidence as possible, but a protection of the national security exercise. If this document exists where it's talking about military plans with Iran, um, they want to get that out of the public domain where Trump can be waving it around at a meeting and right. make sure it goes back to its secured place. So I, 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 ha- I agree with you that I have to imagine they thought about this. And the only thing I can think of, um, and even if it's just one, like you could have a search warrant for one document if it is a you know, highly classified, uh, sensitive document. But I, the, the only thing I can think of is that they found out about this you know, like a year later and they thought that the probable cause just wasn't fresh enough. Seems like a very reasonable answer to me and a good guess. Um, but let's let's go back to the declassification because Donald Trump is saying, I declassified them in my mind. But that doesn't overcome the fact that even if it was declassified, the documents had national defense info. And that's what's at issue here. So, Barb, you're our expert on national security. You want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, the charges here in this case are violation of the Espionage Act and then related uh, conduct to cover it up, you know, obstruction, false statements, conspiracy. And the Espionage Act makes it a crime to willfully retain information relating to the national defense that the possessor could reasonably believe could be used to either injure the United States or advantage a foreign nation. There's no mention whatsoever in the Espionage Act of classified information. Sometimes when people are charged with mishandling uh, information, it is classified and they're charged under a different statute, 18 U.S.C. 1924, which makes it a crime to mishandle classified information because not all classified information relates to the national defense. It might relate to something else. Um, He's not charged with that. So the idea that he declassified it is absolutely irrelevant to these documents. Now, they do talk in the indictment about the fact that they were classified, I think because that requires some special handling under the Classified Information Procedures Act to protect their sensitivity. I think to apprise a jury and the public about just how serious this was, you know, these were, as we said, nuclear secrets and military capabilities. So they are classified, but that's not at all relevant to the crime with which he is charged. As long as they pertain to the national defense, then it is a crime to willfully retain them. And so again, I think this is just one of those things that Trump likes to say to confuse people 
who may not know the distinctions, uh, which are, uh, you know, not commonly known among members of the public, frankly. So I think he is taking advantage of that information gap to try to spin this case in his favor. But it's not going to fly a trial. Well, I hope everyone in our audience now sees how silly the defenses being raised are and why they aren't going to work and feels better about this case going forward. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. After listening to the comments in our first segment, my personal choice would be to have Judge Jill Weinbanks <laughs> overseeing United States versus Trump. But I don't think that's where we're headed. In fact, we're looking yet again um, at Judge Eileen Cannon, a name we have not heard for a while before we learned last week that she's the judge who's now assigned to handle the Trump indictment. Um, Jill, remind us of who Judge Cannon is and her past history handling cases where Trump is among the litigants. So her most famous case, of course, in her very short tenure on the bench is what she did in connection with the search warrant and withholding the documents from the government, appointing a special master to review them and saying the government couldn't look at the documents until after the special review. A decision of hers that was roundly chastised by the 11th Circuit and overturned. Um, but I think we need to know more about her because she's become almost this caricature based on this one decision. So what, what do we know about her? Well, she graduated from a very good law school, Barbara's Law School, Thank University you. of Michigan. <laughs> Go blue. So we have to admit yeah, and and she did very well there. She was Order of the Coif and Magna Cum Laude. So I would say, you know, she at least has a good academic background. She was a member of the Federalist Society. She still is, as far as I know. Um, she clerked for a very conservative judge in uh, an appellate court, the, the uh, Eighth Circuit. And she then went on to a very, very fine law firm, um, Gibson Dunn was an associate for three years and then an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Florida, where she now serves on the bench. She was there for seven years. She had only four jury trials uh, in that time and then was nominated by Marco Rubio and supported by Rick Scott and was confirmed after Trump lost the election. So it was already passed November 3rd and she got um, a qualified rating by the ABA, which she barely qualified for because it requires 12 years of experience, and she just had 12 years. But she did get the qualified. She identifies as an originalist and a textualist. Um, her application for the bench 
included, you have to list your writings, and most people put in the law review articles they've written, et cetera. She put in, I wrote about flamenco dancing and other stuff for the Miami newspaper when I was a summer intern in college. Um, but she, nonetheless, despite her special master's overturned ruling, is the judge on this case and will proceed and with, I assume, some cognizance of the 11th Circuit watching every move she makes and with the possibility that Jack Smith would wait until she makes a horrible mistake again before moving to have her um, ousted from this case. So, Barb, when Judge Cannon handled the civil case that Trump filed after the Mar-a-Lago search warrant was executed, she was actually reversed by the 11th Circuit twice, um, and they had harsh language. You know, it's not infrequent for judges to be reversed. That's why we have appellate courts for appellate judges to revisit decisions made by district judges. But here, the 11th Circuit did more than just revisiting her decision. Um, they, they smacked her pretty hard. They told her she had not had jurisdiction. That was not a close call, by the way. That was something that virtually every pundit, no matter whether they were liberal or conservative, had been saying all along here. Her decisions were in many ways out of bounds of the normal parameters of places where judges get stuff wrong. So one of the options that people have discussed since her appointment is whether or not she could be recused. How, how does that work out, and, and what do you think the options here look like? Yeah, so before we go any further, I have a question for all of you, which is, is it Eileen or Aileen Cannon? Does anyone know? I don't know. I think she says it Aileen. I probably uh, just said Eileen, but I, I, I hear Aileen as the reported, but I've never heard her say her name. I know, yes. it's spelled A-I-L-E-E-N. All right, Judge Cannon, we hope you'll write in and let us know the correct pronunciation of your name so we can pronounce I it. I have a friend who knows her and I'm going to ask. All right, very good. Um, but of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> but as for the recusal issue, it's ju it's judges themselves who decide their own recusals. I, I think that I'm like Jill, uh, she strikes me as you know, a, a little young and perhaps not as experienced as others might be. The ABA uh, graded her as qualified, not highly qualified. But, you know, she's got some good credentials behind her. She did make that um, really um, uh, just bad, lawless ruling in the prior case, which is, I think, what has everybody so concerned. And Joyce, in addition to violating the law of the circuit on the legal standard, she also said that the president should be held to a different standard from everybody else. And I think that's the one that really rubs me the wrong way. Uh, you know, she said that, though, in the context, she, the civil case was in equitable jurisdiction. She was saying, in this equitable jurisdiction, I have to treat the president differently. I agree with you, by the way. I think it's an appalling comment, but I think her lawyers will try to distinguish it because of that. But I'm dead on the money with you um, So I can see why people are concerned about the fact that this case is assigned to her. She could wreak a lot of havoc if she wanted to. Um, but usually the process for recusal is to ask the judge themselves to say, um, judge, you should recuse yourself because we believe you have a conflict of interest. Most often a recusal occurs and a judge will do it on his or her own because they've got some sort of financial conflict or family conflict or business conflict. When I, my first job out of law school, I clerked for a federal district court judge, same level as Judge Cannon. And one of the first things we did was a conflicts check. When a case came in the door, uh, the judge I clerked for had um, a number of conflicts for which he would recuse himself. Um, 
you know, very, very close friends who were lawyers would not handle one of their cases, smallest, but like his closest circle of friends. Um, some places where he had investments, like his bank, his own bank, he wouldn't um, handle a case that covered his own bank and maybe some, you know, some basic stock holdings. So a handful of things, that would be the very first thing we'd do. But those are, you know, things with either personal interest or financial interest. Here, it seems that people are only seeking her recusal because they don't like the way she ruled in a prior case. And ordinarily, that's not enough. I think the standard is something like um, her her involvement in this case could cause uh, people to fairly question her impartiality. So I think at this point, I'd be surprised if the Justice Department files a motion and she would grant such a motion. In a motion, she would have to explain her reasoning and, and why. I think, Joyce, I think I've heard you say this too, what seems a, like a better approach might be for um, uh her, the Justice Department to wait and see. Uh, you know, there are going to be all kinds of motions filed, as we talked about. Donald Trump's going to try to suppress all the evidence and um, claim selective prosecution, all kinds of other frivolous motions. And if she, uh, again, decides something in a way that is lawless or suggests that the, the, the president, former president, is entitled to a different standard from everyone else, maybe then that's an opportunity to both appeal her decision and ask that on remand, the case be reassigned to a different judge. Um, so I, I think I, if I were the Justice Department, I would take a wait-and-see approach because, you know, Merrick Garland, above and beyond everything else, has made it his mission to restore public confidence in the Department of Justice. And I think if you look kind of whiny about, ah, we don't like this judge because we're afraid she's going to rule against us. Maybe it looks like you are lacking confidence in your case. And so I think if they get a conviction against her, um, it's an even stronger conviction because they can say, even this Trump-appointed judge uh, presided over a case at which Donald Trump was convicted. So I think they're going to wait and see what happens. You know, I think that path, um, if there's another substantive appeal, really is a good one. and it's interesting. There's case law in the circuit that says even in the absence of bias, right? That's what you're talking about, Barb. Judges who step down because they have a direct conflict of interest. Maybe they'll financially benefit from the outcome of the case. But in this circuit, the uh, panels have said even in the absence of bias, when we've got a judge who's made a couple of really egregious, we're not talking run-of-the-mill errors, but really egregious outside of the bounds of law sort of errors, And it looks to us like that judge would not be able to set aside the prior path that they were on. Then we'll order the chief judge of of the district court to reassign the case on remand. And I think her prior rulings in the the Mar-a-Lago search warrant case, if, say, she were to make a bad ruling under SEPA and to deny the government of the ability to use some of the classified evidence, or I'm, I'm actually saying that the wrong way, if she were to order the government to put classified evidence in at trial instead of using maybe an, an unclassified summary, then I think the government has a strong path. Um, it's it's sort of risky to not challenge her given her, her prior history. I think ultimately they might have to, but it's a much easier path after she makes um, the next bad ruling. Um, so Kim, Barb alluded to this, and so did Jill, but there's been an argument circulating recently that says she's too young, she's too inexperienced to handle the case. What do you make of that So one? I, I don't think being um, new to the bench, uh, or, and certainly one's age, has a, makes a difference when it comes to 
uh, being prepared to handle a trial of this complexity and of this uh, mag- magnitude, this um, profile and magnitude. Every judge on the federal bench was a new judge at some point or another, right? So it, it would have been impossible for them to get where they are if every time they had a case before them, you were able to raise an objection saying, oh, this, this judge is brand new to the bench, right? And I, and I, I'm not sure if sexism is a part of those criticisms, but I understand that it often can be. And so th- my issues with with her on the bench have nothing to do with the amount of time that she's been on the bench. I mean, we were all attorneys uh, before none of us has been judges, but we have all been attorneys that we, I remember my bar card, the ink on my bar card being barely dry and having my own caseload and being expected to go and and, you know, do my job to the best of my ability and and to the best of my client's ability. And I think that judges should be expected to do the same. I think for me, the concern comes more uh, from what she has done. And we've already broken that down with some of the rulings that she's made uh, initially. And just the lack of, uh, uh, there are obviously a lot of um, trial judges that come who have a lot of trial experience, either from practicing um, or other things. It could even be, you know, running, clinics in in law schools as professors or something else, that they understand the workings of the very high-paced, think-on-your-feet trial court. I think our listeners need to really think about the fact that trial judges have a very, very different job than appellate judges, right? The appellate judges think about the law and how, and precedent and how it's been applied in the past and how it's been applied in their circuit and how um, it may be different in, from other jurisdictions. Trial judges are making decisions decisions every minute of this trial. When someone makes an objection, you have to make a ruling on that objection, whether it's evidentiary or something else. You have to have a a, a good grasp of the rules of federal civil procedure in in order to make that. If you can't make a a ruling on a motion right on the spot, you have to be able to take a very short uh, recess to be able to consider that motion and come back and make a ruling on it. It is a very, very difficult and and think on your feet type of job. And so if she is not up for that in a case that involves national security, in a case that involves classified documents, in a very specific, um, you know, kind of a, a really sort of special kind of case, then that can be that can be problematic that she is taking this on. I think if it were me and I was a new judge, there, I may not want to take that on immediately. We saw with the magistrate who did Trump's arraignment <laughs> at the end, he said, this is where my, you know, this is where my involvement <laughs> in this case stops. And thank goodness, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he was just like, thank God this is not on my docket because this seems like a lot of, this is a complicated case and it is. So I really hope that she is up to the task of this. I don't know if she is or not, but I really hope that she is because, you know, justice depends on it. Yeah, I mean, it's really sort of odd to me to see this argument circulating. And I confess that I have questioned whether we would be hearing that argument if she was a man, not a Mm, woman. Fair enough, Um, fair enough. Once you're confirmed as a federal judge, you're a federal judge, right? And you can do any case that shows up on your docket. Um, I'm less less interested in that argument than I am about the, the prior case rulings. Well, lots of interesting questions here. We'll have to wait and see how DOJ decides to handle the issues and the judge herself.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This week, the Supreme Court issued an opinion upholding sovereign rights for Native American tribes in adoption matters. Um, And I want to talk about this case because it's a significant one. Although, you know, a couple of things. The Supreme Court heard a record low number of cases this year, something like only in the 50s. In recent years, they've been hearing like in the 80s. And they still have like 18 opinions to go. It's ridiculous. Kim, don't they normally finish by the end of June? How can they still have it's 18 opinions? It's hard when you're reversing that much longstanding precedent, <laughs> Barb. That's right. Destroying democracy takes some time. That's true. That's right. We ought, ought to be patient about that. Yes, there are a lot of cases still left given how All short right. of amount of time they have. Yes. Well, I thought a couple. Uh, one of the significant cases this week was this one on the... Um, Indian Child Welfare Act. But, you know, before we delve into the case, I just wanted to ask all of you, is is uh, is it correct to say Indian or is Native American preferred? I know the law often lags between popular um, culture. Uh, you know, for example, the word alien is used throughout the law. And, you know, in my former office, we, we switched our nomenclature to undocumented person as opposed to illegal alien. But... Um, but Indian is all over the law. What do you guys think about that? Is it uh, appropriate to say Indian or is Native American preferred? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, my general my general thing is to ask the people who are affected yeah. by these. And, and in most of my reporting, people respond to them as part of their tribe, like the Mashpee tribe or the Blackfoot tribe yeah, or the nation. Right. I don't want to be called in, either. I want to be called, yeah, Cherokee. Right, and, and, and try to, in my reporting, use that. But it's difficult because we have mm. statutes like the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so everything in this opinion said Indian. Yes. And I think yes. it was because of the statutory language. And it's it's a it's an important question to ask whether that's appropriate. I, I think that's such an interesting answer, Kim. You know, I think that in my question, I, I made the mistake of thinking of Native American peoples as a monolith, right? What do mm-hmm. we call this group? Instead, as what your answer tells me is we should think of them as sovereign nations. There's the Cherokee mm-hmm. Nation. There's the Chippewa Nation. You know, that's really mm-hmm. interesting. When I um, was U.S. attorney, we had a tribe in our districts. It's still there. The Saginaw Chippewa Tribe in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And um, as part of uh, our, our assignment, we were to um, consult with them as an independent sovereign about how we could best work together and serve that community. And we did, and they were wonderful. And I would tell you, they frequently use the term Indian, which I thought yep. was very interesting. Yes. And, and our sec- our Secretary of the Interior um, uses the word Indian in her statement about this decision. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it, but it would be, I think Kim is right, it's very interesting to ask um, Mm-hmm. How do the people who would fall into the category, whatever you call it, want to be identified? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'd love to hear from our listeners on this topic because I, I, I think, yeah. as we said, language language evolves and we want to make sure that we're talking about people and groups respectfully. So, uh, But the law uses the word Indian and it uses the, there's the statute called the Indian Child Welfare Act. So let me start, Jill, by just asking you, what is the Indian Child Welfare Act? It is an act that was designed in 1978 to protect the best interests of what Again, I'm going to have to use the word Indian because that's the mm-hmm. statutory language. Let's just speculate uh, so. that for the purpose of this discussion, where we mean it in terms of stat, we're using statutory language. Yes. Okay. So it was to protect the interests of Indian children who were, prior to that, being removed forcibly from the tribe that they belong to, from the family that they belong to. And so this was to promote stability and security of the tribes and families by establishing certain federal standards before children could be removed and placed outside of the tribe and outside of the Indian culture. So that was the purpose of this Indian Child Welfare Act. And uh, the case is quite interesting based on that. Well, good. So there's the statute. And Joyce, can you just tell us what the case was about? What was the issue and what did the court decide? Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting case. I'd love to see us do a whole topic um, on the law that governs the tribes and and the way um, self-governance happens on tribal lands. I think it's a fascinating issue. Here, this case arises from three separate child custody cases that get consolidated for purposes of this appeal. They are all governed by the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, And as Jill's mentioned, that statute, the whole goal is to keep Indian children connected to Indian families, whether it's their family of birth or a tribal family is the first order of business. That's the goal that's at stake here. Um, The statute governs state court adoptions and foster care proceedings whenever an Indian child, a member of one of the tribes, is involved. And so the Supreme Court in this decision, they uphold that law, and they say the goal of keeping Native American adoptees with their tribes and traditions is an important one, and, and we will not interfere with that. So in that sense, it's a really big victory for the tribes and for self-governance, but there's an interesting issue that doesn't get addressed in, in this opinion. You know, Justice Barrett writes the opinion, and she leaves open the issue of whether there's an equal protection argument that the white Christian family from Texas who wants to adopt one of the children says, you know, we're being denied equal protection here. Um, And she says, and it's very interesting, um, that she's not going to rule on the issue because there's no party present in the case who has standing to raise it. Um, Sort of a complicated issue, but it's good to know that the Supreme Court remembers that there is a standing doctrine (laughs) and that only parties with standing can raise issues. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so Kim, there were also two justices who dissented from the majority opinion, Justices Thomas and Alito. Uh, what were their views on this? Case? Yeah, so generally speaking, when it comes to family law and adoption, that is something that is normally within the realm of states' rights, and uh, particularly in Thomas's uh, dissent, which I found a, a little more um, 
I don't know, I understood that one a little more than Alito's. Um, it's basically saying, look, this is the federal government trampling on states' rights. The, who de- The determination of where a child should be placed has normally been within the state's rights and it should be here. But as we pointed out before, this was a charge by Congress, right, which when it comes to uh, Indian sovereignty and Indian nations, that has always been a matter of federal law. There are so many federal treaties that are governing um, Indian nations and their rights and their sovereignty, right? So this law was passed in 1978 at a time when... And it still remains the fact that uh, Indian children are removed from the family at a a rate that's so much higher than the national average. It's really shocking, right? And they're also placed in foster and adoptive homes outside of not only their families, but often outside of their tribes, of their nations, again, disproportionately high. And so what that actually does is when you're taking children of these uh, communities out of the communities, it accelerates the likely extinction of those communities, right? Because if you're not carrying on those traditions and, and that history, it's impossible for those nations to survive. I can't stress enough that this is a matter. This was passed by Congress because it was understood that it was a matter of the very survival of these nations, that this practice not continue. And so that's why this law gives a preference first to a child uh, who is uh, from an Indian nation um, to a family member. If there is not a family member that is able to foster or adopt this child, then it was somebody within that nation. If there is not somebody within that nation that is available to foster or adopt that child, then it's somebody who is Native American. And then after that, non-Native Americans can be um, considered as adoptive parents. Keep in mind that the challengers in this case who tried to adopt a child were able to adopt that child in the end. So I'm just under, I I am the only thing that is still, I'm happy that the Supreme Court decided the way they did, um, that I'm still a little flabbergasted about is the fact that this wasn't just thrown out on standing from beginning. These people got their kid. Mm -hmm. There was no harm done here. They got the kid that they wanted, but they're just like, oh, but the process was so hard. Well, you know, boohoo, life is hard, you know. (laughs) Well, um, I mean, well, really, won't come to you with my complaints. But, <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's also. I will point out one other thing: is that this uh, opinion was written by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who, as we know, has adopted two children from, I believe, Ethiopia. And so I think if she, even she, as somebody who understands how this process works, can see the value of the statute and say that it was entirely within the authority of Congress, uh, I think that that's important. Yeah. You know, I wanted to pick up on one of the threads that Joyce mentioned, which there wasn't really standing to address this issue, but I think this issue is one that is worth talking about. And that is this argument that this statute in some way uh, involves race discrimination because it favors Native Americans over other groups, uh, you know, whites and, you know, African-Americans, others who might want to adopt these children. Um, As I understand it, the argument is not that this is based on race. It's based on tribal sovereignty. Correct. Uh, You know, it's like saying, you know, people from France get to adopt the French kids or people from Italy get to adopt the Italian kids. What do you make of that? Do you think that 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 argument is valid? And um, I'm just curious about your thoughts about it because I think it's really interesting and, and, and sort of demonstrates the way so many Americans still kind of fail to see that Native American tribes are sovereign nations. 
I think that goes to the fundamentals of their sovereignty, right? Um, and that's how they've postured this argument in an effort to have that sovereignty eroded. And also because they believe it's important that the prioritization um, that's in place that gives preference to members of the same tribe should stay there. You know, I sort of understand the the argument in the sense that, well, we want all of these kids to find good homes. But I think that because the tribes have sovereignty, they get to make those decisions here. So we have reached what is truly our favorite part of the podcast, which is questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. We try to answer as many of your questions there as we can. So first up is Laura in Quebec, Canada. We love our international listeners. And Laura asks, Let's say Trump gets convicted of anything that requires actual jail time and there's a home confinement arraignment. Is it the Secret Service who enforces the confinement? What about the Trump cronies in the Secret Service who are inclined to be favorable to Trump? Interesting question. Joyce, do you know the answer? You know, it really is an interesting question. Um, the Secret Service won't be charged, at least not technically, with monitoring Trump because he will be in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons if he's in home confinement. And so depending on the jurisdiction, um, what most likely happens is there some sort of monitoring device that's put on him? Again, with Trump, this is a wide open question, right? Because there is some concern, some legitimate concern about protecting a former president, maybe you don't want to put a monitoring device that could be hacked on him, but likely he'll be subjected to the same conditions of anybody else in custody. And then some combination of BOP and probation personnel um, will make sure that there's not an incident where he leaves the area that he's supposed to stay in. Usually, if you're on home confinement, you can leave to go to church or to work or to a doctor's appointment, and that is about it. Um, and that monitoring will be maintained strictly. Ultimately, he will remain under the jurisdiction of the judge in whatever district he's incarcerated in. And if he violates those conditions, he would be taken immediately into custody. So, Joyce, does that mean he can't play golf? <laughs> you know, I think golf is off the table unless they like Yay. define, you know, maybe they'll define Mar-a-Lago very broadly and give him the run of the place. But one would hope, I mean, seriously, he should not benefit from his wealth. And so if he's convicted and if the order is home confinement, it should be a very narrow order. All right. Our next question comes from Anne in Portland, Oregon, where we all just were a few weeks ago. Anne asks, will there be a 50th anniversary reunion of the Watergate prosecution force? Uh, I was the information section chief and would love to come if there is one. That one is for, of course, Joe Weinbanks. And hi, Anne. And I'm sorry we didn't get to meet in Portland a few weeks ago, but the answer is yes, there is going to be a 50th anniversary reunion. The team is going to get together on Saturday night, let's see, October 21st. And um, if you will 
contact me through my website, which is www.jillwinebanks.com. I can make sure that you get on the list for the information. And there'll also be something at the uh, National Press Club uh, for some of us to speak and um, several other events. But the big event for us getting together is at um, on the 21st, celebrating the Saturday Night Massacre. Wow, that sounds really great. Um, and our final question is from Jenna, who asks, can you elaborate a little more on the phrase speedy trial that keeps being used about the recent Trump federal charges? I was always under the impression that a speedy trial is a defendant's right. When Jack Smith said that, did he mean more uh, expedient or does the government in federal cases have a constitutional right to a speedy trial as well? Barb. Oh, this is such a good question. Uh, Thank you, Jenna. And this is a topic that we cover extensively in my criminal procedure class. I haunt my students with understanding this. And and you ask a really good question because a defendant has both a constitutional and a statutory right to a speedy trial. The government does not have a constitutional right to a speedy trial, but it does have a statutory right. So there is a federal statute called the Speedy Trial Act. And what it says is that not only does the defendant have a right to a speedy trial, but so does the public. Uh, Because, you know, a defendant might have an incentive to drag out a case, to delay it. I mean, Donald Trump certainly does. If he can kick the can down the road past the 2024 election and maybe even become president, he might arguably be able to pardon himself. And so the Justice Department, as you heard and you note, Jack Smith said, we will seek a speedy trial. Um, There is an interest of the public in having a speedy trial. Now, the Speedy Trial Act does have all kinds of reasons that stop the clock. Uh, filing of motions stops the clock. A uh, reasonable time to consider that by the judge up to 30 days stops the clock. The arraignment of a co-defendant like Walt Nauta is stopping the clock until his arraignment on June 27th. So there are all kinds of little things that can stop the clock or even a particularly complex case. You know, the SEPA and classified information in this case will likely stop the clock as well. But you bet that the government does have this statutory right to a speedy trial. And Jack Smith has said that they will push it to get that trial as, as done as quickly as possible. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them using the hashtag Sisters in Law for next week's show. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Real Paper, Thrive Cosmetics, and Olive in June. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. And to keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And please give us a five-star review because it really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. I like Jill saying I don't like pasta salad. <laughs> she says I love everything. She's like, yeah, I don't like pasta. Ah, I think that's funny. Like it now the truth really comes funny. out. Yeah. Now the truth comes out. I think that'd be a funny code. I'd like, yeah, I don't like pasta yeah. salad. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, by the way, Jill. I don't like pasta salad. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. I usually skip just because of the carbs. Yeah. <laughs> I make a good pasta salad. I have nobody to make pasta salad for because a key ingredient of mine is olives and my husband doesn't like olives. Oh, we'll be over oh. here eating the watermelon. Don't worry about us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Kim, have my you pasta never salad taken by myself. 
Have you ever taken the watermelon and soaked it in tequila and then put um, salt on the end and it's like you could eating soak a margarita? It in chocolate. It doesn't matter. It's <laughs> disgusting. Oh god. It's disgusting. It's gross. Kim is gonna die on this hill, you guys. There's there's gonna be no <laughs> pulling right, her enough. off. Fair enough. We all get our we all get our things. See, Brisby agrees with me. <laughs> 